You had to know we were going to do this story, right? Brad, Jennifer! We, Brad, Jennifer, you need him right over here because there's glare. Okay, Roger! Brad, Jennifer! That's Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston walking the 2004 Emmy red carpet. She's big on friends and about to make the jump to full-time movie stardom. That year, he's the star of the epic Troy, though he's been in Seven, Fight Club, and Ocean's Eleven, and pretty much already cemented himself as the male sex symbol of the 21st century. They are the couple we all love to love. Here's Brad on Oprah that year. She's that, like that, that fire we all crowd around for warmth. And she's, really? um, no, I'm not, uh, this, is, this is genuine. It's truly genuine. She's, there's not an ill-intentioned bone in this woman's body. She's really, she's really extraordinary that way, and she's taught me a lot that way. And of course, there is a Diane Sawyer special for all seasons. This is from her 2004 sit-down with Jennifer Aniston. It was 1998 when Jennifer Aniston first went out on a date with Brad Pitt, arranged only in Hollywood by intuitive matchmaking agents. Hollywood agents, the true millionaire matchmakers. Who's more jealous? I think we, we worked on that one. We got rid of that one. I mean, we, I think jealousy is healthy to a point, but no... Mm-mm. We've we, we've worked on that one. We've we've knocked that that one out. Well, maybe not entirely. We'll put a pin in that. Brad and Jen were the extremely hot Betty and Archie of Hollywood, all American California blonde types with seemingly approachable lives. Jen was a fun comedic actress. She had cool layered hair. So did Brad occasionally. They gave us truly beautiful red carpet photos to look at. And then, then there was Veronica. At the end of the bed, do you have something that you've written in blood, which... We both have written. Um, it, it says, uh, to the end of time. And I gave it to him for Christmas, and it was my blood, and I spelt it out and framed it, and it was just over our bed. And, and um, recently, he made one for me, and so we just have two different things framed. Um... That's Angelina Jolie in July 2001 talking about her husband, Billy Bob Thornton, an actor 20 years her senior. These two were wild. Here's a clip of them on the MTV red carpet. You want me to be honest with you? We f***ed in the car on the way here. Yeah. This video is hilarious. Billy Bob is in a trucker hat, and for the entirety of this interview, Angelina Jolie is sucking on and kissing his cheek and lip. And that's not even her most infamous red carpet kiss. That was with her brother on Oscars night 2000. I'm not even going to get into that. It happened. Look it up. Here's a hasn't-aged-well clip of Charlie Rose cringingly stroking Jolie's tattooed arm. And what's this one? Uh, it's an H. My, my brother's middle name is Haven. And, and they're, what, six and all? Something like that. Yeah. And why do you, why do, you do this? Um, I don't have many on places you can see. Most of them are, are in the areas that, that you know, Most can't do nude scenes. <laughs> <laughs> there was also a lot of stuff with her famous father and knives and vials of blood and drugs and bisexuality, which the magazines of the 2000s were not equipped to cover in any kind of grown-up way. Angelina Jolie was basically the most alienating movie star out there but also extremely, extremely hot. 
and she pulled in Box Office Bank as the star of the Tomb Raider franchise. You know where I'm going with all of this, of course. But I'll let Lainey Louie of the blog Lainey Gossip spell it all out. And then along comes the raven-haired, buxom, tattooed, wild girl to blow up this love affair for the ages. It classically tapped into all these fears of that trope of what does my husband do when he goes to work with that hot colleague? It was 2005 when Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston's marriage ended, and the world was soon to know a new celebrity portmanteau, Brangelina. Long did it rain, at least by Hollywood standards. If Benifer had marked a beginning of the era of rapid tabloid coverage, then Brangelina came at that era's peak. Pretty much every Us Weekly cover in 2005 and some of 2006 had a piece of news about the love triangle. A whole lot of reporting and resources were poured into getting those juicy features, one of the last stands of print media's glory. And the drama was, like Lainey said, all about women's fears. Fears of betrayal, of jealousy, of not having it all. That fear sold a whole lot of magazines, and honestly, is probably still messing with your brain to this day. From The Ringer, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. My tabloid and celebrity trash love definitely skipped a generation. My parents subscribed to things like National Geographic and forbade us from watching cable television. But my grandma was a huge fan of the National Enquirer and Howard Stern. The more outrageous, the better. Grocery store tabloids during the 1990s were basically considered delicious nonsense far beyond the scope of respectability. Publications like the National Enquirer and Star even looked a little grubby. They were published on newsprint and had grainy, weird photos and way too much cover text. They wrote frequently about JonBenet Ramsey and the possibility of alien life on Earth. I would have never even dreamed to ask my mother to buy one. 
Here's an old SNL parody of the National Enquirer's editors if you want an idea of the popular consensus. On page three here, the article about the monkey performing surgery on the blind woman. I think it needs a picture. Uh, you know, I went through the files, Chief, and uh, we have a picture of a chimpanzee wearing a stethoscope. That's great. That'll help. Go with it. The great innovation of Us Weekly was that it took the salacious stuff that my grandma loved to read about and packaged it in a way that would make someone like my mother want to pick up a copy. Not that you would, Mom, but just saying. Us Weekly readers were young, relatively affluent women with a medium household income of over $72,000 in 2005. That's over $100,000 in today's money. They were sophisticated media consumers. They wanted quality and good dish. In 2003, Janice Min took over for Bonnie Fuller as Us Weekly's editor-in-chief. At 33, she was her target demographic. She had two degrees from Columbia University, and she had her first child while working at the magazine. Her former colleagues and numerous profiles describe her as a very chic New York lady. Think pin-perfect Prada. Can you give me a week in the life of? I will start with, a, with Wednesday, um, our ideas meeting, uh, which is basically everyone gets together in the room, uh, the writers and editors, and they just pitch who wants to start. Where should we start? Lindsay. By Friday night, we'll pretty much have one cover we're going after. We have about 70, 75 edit pages to fill every week. We do 52 covers a year, which is a little terrifying. And some of those weeks, you are just, you know, you're lighting a candle hoping that a good idea comes to you. During her tenure, Us Weekly circulation rose by 350000 a week, and she was reportedly paid close to $2 million a year. That would put her on par with the reported salaries of big Condé Nast editors like Graydon Carter and Anna Winter. That's a lot of money. But remember, print was king in the mid-2000s. The cash flowing into and out of magazines, particularly one like Us, was pretty insane by today's standards. And that enabled the kind of reporting that I'm about to describe to you, which in turn enabled the juiciest celebrity coverage around. Which made a certain kind of worldly young woman want to shell out for her weekly celebrity gossip. Because it was perfectly calibrated to feel both escapist and entirely relevant to her life. But back to the crazy resources. In the winter of 2004 and early 2005, Peter Grossman, Us Weekly's news photo editor, stumbled into one of the bigger photo gits of the tabloid war years, the last photos of Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston together. It's a bit of a tale. That winter, there had been rumors that Brad and Jen were on the rocks. And sometime over the holiday rush, the magazine had lost track of the star couple. One night, Peter got a call from a guy he'd given his business card to while on vacation in Anguilla, the Caribbean island. Peter had gotten in the habit of giving out his info while on vacation in nice places, just in case. Peter is a very smart guy, a good talker, and it's easy to see how he sourced up so well. His Anguilla guy was giving him a rundown of the celebs on the island for winter break. It turned out that included Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston, David Arquette, and Courtney Cox and his source knew where they were staying. Peter told him to hang tight. He'd see him in Anguilla the next day for lunch. And I remember walking down the the hall to Janice's office and just saying, I found them. I found them. I found Brad and Jen. 
When Peter got to Anguilla the next day, he was actually able to meet up with a photographer that he'd sent down a few days before, just in case any good celebs were on vacation. See? That good old print money. The first couple of days were slow. The celebrity contingent was holed up in a house. Then, Peter and company found out that the movie stars would all be going to lunch at a restaurant that could only be accessed by rowboat. In other words, a perfect situation to get a paparazzo shot. One way in, one way out. The pap hid out in his car on land, and Peter took a rowboat and had lunch at the same restaurant as Brad and Jen. And I went and got to have lunch, and there's Brad dancing around and doing his thing. It was The band was called The Happy Hits. Peter said he was even handed cameras by a few tourists to take pictures with Brad. Then it was time for a rowboat back. His photographer was situated just out of sight, ready to take a picture undetected. But then... These two morons come out from their car, from a rival agency that I didn't know was there, screaming like they're on Robertson. Brad, over here, over here! They're, they're on the dock with them. And I'm watching this happen, and I'm, like, hearing, like, you know, the opera tragedy music in the background. Like, oh, is this... Is, is this happening right now? And then I look over at my guy and he's like looking at me. What do I do? And he kind of gets out of the car to try to get the... And it's a disaster. It's a... It's just a fucking nightmare. The Pitts and Arquettes got spooked. They checked out of their house. But fortunately for Peter and his pap, they checked into a luxury villa on a property where Peter had another contact. Yes, we should mention here that the photographers and people like Peter had definitely ruined the vacation of these celebrities. Sure, they had a right to dine and stay where these celebrities were staying, but they were certainly invading their privacy in trying to watch their every single solitary move. Celebrity stakeouts are not a part of polite social norms. Peter, meanwhile, who still has a great time telling this story all these years later, saw it as a grand adventure. Anyhow, they still had no photos to show for their days on the island. All the same, Peter asked his boss if he and his photographer could check into a nearby villa at the cost of thousands of dollars to the magazine. Let's take a pause here to summarize. Peter had been flown to a tropical island at the height of its busy season, had been put up in a luxury accommodation, and fed, along with a couple other photographers, there was a second pap at some point, for many days. This is not counting a couple of island guys who were helping out. Their deadline to make the next issue of Us Weekly was looming, with nothing to show for it. But Peter was saved by the sound of a familiar voice. I was alone with our pap, and we just heard, Woo! Out the back window. And I just, like, looked, just not because I recognized the voice, but it was Brad Pitt having just drained a half-court shot on the basketball court. And there he is, with his shirt off, just running around playing basketball, just being Brad Pitt on a basketball court. Shirtless Brad Pitt bought Peter's crew a little more time on the island. You can find the shirtless Brad picture inset on the cover of the January 17th, 2005 issue of Us Weekly. The real money shot was yet to come, though. And it took a few more days on that expensive island until Peter's team finally had another opportunity. The Aniston pit crew was going to another restaurant with one access point along a lonely stretch of beach. The photographers hunkered down 
and did their thing. I remember walking down the little bit of the beach towards where I was staying and coming up to the, the back porch to find the two photographers on my balcony <laughs> um, with a laptop open, just glowing on their faces, and they didn't even look up at me. <laughs> they didn't even acknowledge my presence. They were just staring at the screen. And I came around and kind of just looked over their shoulders, and there it was, uh, the picture of Brad and Jen on the beach. He's got that shirt that says trash on it, and she's resting her head on his shoulder. I certainly know that picture from memory. Maybe you do, too. It was the January 24, 2005 cover of Us Weekly, and what made it so memorable is that in the day between Peter's crew taking the photo and coming back to the U.S., Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston broke up. They gave their official statement to People, but Us Weekly had their last photos together. The cover line Janice Min slapped on the picture of Trash Brad and Jennifer? Why Brad said goodbye. You've got why Brad said goodbye on this picture, this beautiful, like, literally walking into the sunset. And she's got sad Jen on his shoulder. The narrative that Jennifer Aniston was a downtrodden figure in the breakup would linger for years and years in the press. I don't doubt that the photo and that cover line really helped plant the seeds of all that was to come. I mean, the image and the setting is so wistful. The idea of a romantic tropical vacation to end your marriage? My God, conscious uncoupling, eat your heart out. Us Weekly followed their big get with successive covers like Did Brad Cheat? and How Jen Found Out. In fact, the How Jen Found Out issue was one of the three best-selling issues of that year for the magazine, third only to Jen's Revenge, a July cover that featured Aniston being held by Vince Vaughn while wearing a bikini, and August's Angelina and the kids move in with Brad. That one had a subhead about Brad becoming a dad, except they put the word dad in scare quotes so that it read sarcastically. Ouch. The celebrity magazines championed Jennifer Aniston. And for good reason. Sales. Jennifer Aniston has long scored high on likability indexes. In the mid-2000s, a celebrity appeal rating by the e-poll market research firm had Aniston atop the list for female celebs, along with the likes of Sandra Bullock and Reese Witherspoon. She still must sell. I feel like every other issue of In Style that lands in my mailbox has Jennifer Aniston on the cover. Here's Jen Peros, a celebrity reporter during the 2000s, who became the editor-in-chief of Us Weekly later in the aughts. If it's celebrities that we know that readers really, really love, we would never do a negative story about them. You know, everybody loves Beyonce. Everybody loves Jennifer Aniston. So a negative story about either one of them wouldn't sell, only a positive one. These covers and the coverage inside the magazine was powerfully shaping the public's perceptions of these very famous people. And sometimes the way they were spinning things was deeply retrograde as both Jennifer Aniston and Angelina Jolie would come to know all too well. Betty versus Veronica is a tame way of framing things. The subtext of tabloid coverage was about the homewrecker and the scorned wife, the fertile mother and the dried-up spinster. Who was mostly missing from all this? Brad Pitt. Male cover faces don't sell. 
Us Weekly went to great lengths to get good pictures, and they knew which way to tilt their covers so that the celebrities their readers liked were getting a boost. But Us Weekly also attracted discerning readers because it did actual fact-checked reporting that was scoops-driven but still credible. People got tired of celebrity interactions like this Good Morning America segment with, yes, Diane Sawyer. I'm going to say a name. Oh. Vince Vaughn. (laughs) And? Yeah. (laughs) So I'm looking here. This is a probing question. (laughs) Next question, Ms. Sawyer. <laughs> Just no. friends. Do you want to say anything? We've seen the pictures. Do you yeah, want to say anything? Yeah, we're there, and then they'll say, you know, pictures. Pictures are the pictures. He's my friend, absolutely. Dear friend. And that's all we're allowed to know? <laughs> Good God. Tabloids actually went after juicy stories. They did the reporting that propped up Diane Sawyer's specials. And at us... That reporting was done in a conventional magazine style. There were fact-checkers. There were lawyers. You had to confirm with at least two sources. So I literally would get an email from the editor here in New York, and she would be like, we think that this couple is dating. They're staying at the Mandarin Oriental. We need you to go to the Mandarin Oriental, sit there for five hours, and pretty much just wait for them to walk through the lobby. If you see them together, if you can confirm that they're together and they're staying at the Mandarin Oriental, call us immediately. Jen Peros again. Back in those days, Us Weekly, you know, for us to be able to break a big story, we had to confirm it with two to three sources. We would never just go out to press with one source. People magazine had the same kind of fact-checking and journalistic ethics that Us did. But they were always a little more conservative. They wanted to play nice with the celebrities so they could obtain the rights to their wedding photos and baby pictures. They were the classic celebrity cooperative. Both us and people had certain ethical lines they wouldn't cross. They didn't pay sources directly, and they wouldn't out celebrities. Here's Janice Min in 2006 in an interview with Media Bistro. We don't use uh, any photos that are taken in a illegal manner. Uh, we don't photograph children at school. We, and we also don't show any photos where, that, where celebrities are clearly under... Uh, distress. And, you know, we pulled, we pulled a lot of photographs. Well, that last bit would be tested with the coverage of Britney Spears. Anyhow, magazines did tend to be sensitive, or at least coyly euphemistic, about pregnancy announcements until they were official. The National Enquirer was on the other end of the journalism ethics spectrum. They'd speculate about who was gay in Hollywood and run mean covers about what stars had cellulite. Now, this is not to say that the National Enquirer wasn't getting actual truthful scoops. On the same February 2005 cover that declared Angelina Jolie had rejected Brad Pitt, they ran a smaller inset about Bill Cosby's sex accuser. They followed it up the next week with the shocking charges that Cosby had drugged two women for sex. They weren't wrong a lot of the time, but they were pretty unethical. Outlets like Star and the National Enquirer paid outright for tips. Us Weekly didn't. By the way, mainstream journalists like yours truly don't pay for sources because, frankly, cost aside, there's just a real risk that the person will tell you what they think you want to hear. Plus, if you pay them, then you become entangled in their personal agenda. Here's Jillish Kanian, who, before working at Us, 
was a reporter for Star. There was a different demo going on between who gave information to Us Weekly and who gave to Star, to the, you know. And I would say the Star person, they wanted money most of the time. Jill said she'd also get disgruntled relatives and mistresses of celebrities who'd call in. There's a woman who faxed in, oh, if you want to see who, and this was a top TV star, uh, if you want to see who he's having an affair with, you need to be at LAX at this time. And this da, da, da. So sure enough, we sent photographers and got pictures. And then we traced the fax thing. And it was the mistress because she was tired. She had been dating this famous TV star for years and no one had ever figured it out. Jared Shapiro, that former Bonnie Fuller assistant we heard from on episode one, went on to become the executive editor and later editorial director at Life and Style and became ensconced in the wild world of tabloid sourcing. There was a travel agent that had every celebrity's, um, you know, frequent flyer numbers. So you knew every flight they were getting on and everywhere they were going. Well, that guy's risking his career for you. He's going to pay him. But he was providing you a service, possibly better than anybody else on your staff. If you know Angelina Jolie is getting on flight 17 from New York to L.A. on American Airlines, and she's sitting in seat 1A, and I can book a reporter to sit in seat 1B, it's pretty good access, and we did that. Jill told me her first big star story was actually about how Brad Pitt was a big pothead. That was such a big, shocking scoop back then that Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford would blaze up in their trailers while filming The Devil's Own, that Jill was given $10,000 to tip out her sources. It was a different ballgame with Us Weekly tipsters. With Us Weekly, it was a little more complicated. I would say it was um, publicists. It was uh, people who wanted more fame than they had. Like that girlfriend of the powerful Hollywood man who tipped off Us Weekly to all the Benefer wedding plans? Remember that from the first episode? Jill said they rewarded her for information by putting her in a best-dressed slot in the magazine. Or take the case of Neil Lane, the now-renowned jeweler to the Bachelor franchise. Back in the Bonnie Fuller days, Jill pitched a flattering feature on him, and boom, she had a source. Neil would tell her all the nitty-gritty details when a big name bought something. Oh, Jill, I'll tell you, it's seven carats. It's this, it's that. She wants something like that. Da, da. And, you know, and women love that stuff. Women love the uh, details about rings and weddings. Us Weekly reporting was more conventional, if still invasive. It trained readers to trust the magazine, despite its lowbrow content. They were taught to expect sourced gossip that elicited confidence. Here's that 2006 Media Bistro interview with Janice Minigan. She was, by this time, a star editor attracting lots of attention in the media world. You guys scooped the Brad and Angelina relationship. Yes. How did you do that? There's some, some shock that you can actually apply real journalistic skills <laughs> to the world of celebrity, but you can, and we do. And Us is really the only magazine out there still that covers celebrities as a newsbeat. It was that reporting rigor and the knack for salacious story framing that set the magazine apart from the rest of the tabloid world. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. 
Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of reals always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Okay, let's turn things back to the Brad, Jen, Angie love triangle. Sure, it was definitely about cheating. But the whole thing had such a life. I mean, years of coverage centered around these three because it turned into a story about motherhood. Who deserves to be a mom? Who's screwing up their life by missing out? Hollywood and the media might get a lot of flack for being liberal shills, but let me tell you, the values of the tabloids are pretty damn traditional, at least on the gender norm stuff. One of the more unexpected entrants into the celebrity mom canon was Angelina Jolie. When you were younger, you believed you wouldn't live very long. No. Why not? It is odd, but I don't know if it's that rare. But well, I learned a lot about my being a self-destructive person in my life. I never felt sad. This is Jolie talking to Barbara Walters in 2004. Now do you feel that you will have a long and fulfilling life? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't have uh, adopted a child if I didn't think I was uh, absolutely never going to be self-destructive again. In 2002, Jolie adopted her son Maddox from Cambodia. It was quite a turn in life narrative, especially since the year before, she'd been talking vials of blood and her sex life. Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton divorced pretty soon after she adopted Maddox. In 2003, she said she hadn't had sex in a year. She was a full-time single mom in a new phase of life, though still an oversharer. Hollywood and America were perplexed by Jolie the mother, all the more so when she ended up in the midst of Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston's breakup. It was like our brains couldn't handle the idea that someone could do something immoral, but also have the desire to be a loving mother. The three-dimensionalness of it was overwhelming. Tabloids deal best in a one-dimensional woman. Jen was the good girl, the one who deserved to have Brad's babies. Angelina Jolie was settling down and getting everything that Jennifer Aniston, the good girl, deserved. <laughs> 
It was, we should say, kind of an anti-feminist nightmare on the motherhood front, no matter how you felt about the whole cheating thing. Here's the writer Leslie Bennett, who profiled Aniston for Vanity Fair, talking to NBC's Katie Couric in 2005 about the family angle of the love triangle. I think it was a tremendous shock to her when the pictures of, of Brad and Angelina frolicking on the beach in Africa came out because it sort of presented them as this instant family with a baby and Jen had expected to be having her own baby with Brad during this particular year. The whole motherhood discourse, which is incredibly powerful, particularly for working women in their 20s and 30s, a.k.a. Us Weekly's readership, was so compelling. And also, I would say, not very good for women. For one thing, it narrowed the scope of who deserves to be a mom. Specifically, not a non-cuddly lady like Angelina Jolie. There was a loaded quality to our fascination with her adoptions. Why was she adopting all the brown kids? As a statement of cool? Misplaced adventurism masquerading as motherhood? And of course, forever tying Jolie's fertility to Jennifer Aniston's put Jennifer Aniston in an unwinnable position. She was doomed to a decade of headlines about how she couldn't get a man to give her kids. Later, of course, Jen's baby narrative would curdle a bit, and she'd be accused of not wanting kids, thus conveniently placing the blame for the breakup on her head, not lovable old Brad's. And she was treated to years of cringy interviews trying to shoehorn in the question of motherhood. Here's Diane Sawyer trying to force a connection between Aniston's 2005 sexy thriller Derailed and the prospect of having babies. Is there a moral in it? Is there a, is there a lesson in it? Well, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, you know, that's what people say. Is this a moral film? Is this just it's, it's a thriller? You know, it's a great psychological thriller with a moral. Basically, I would say if there's anything... Think but twice before you take candy from a stranger. And don't take for granted the, you know, things that are in your things that are in your life because yeah. can all go bad. <laughs> and you said over and over again that you absolutely still believe in marriage. You still believe in some place he'll walk in the room and he will be the father of the children you're going to have. Mm-hmm. Nothing's changed. No. Uh-uh. No way. <laughs> yeah. The Aniston Jolie mommy wars of tabloid creation were also, to be fair, complicated by the fact that Jolie and Pitt kind of played up their family image from the get go. Though they were a controversial couple, they didn't really hide from the press. Or I should say, they ended up using the press in a strategic way. Probably to counteract this kind of coverage. Here's our girl Diane Sawyer again, talking with Brad Pitt in 2005. Did Angelina Jolie break up your marriage? No. I handled this like a game show. <laughs> no. Everyone says she's a homewrecker. It's a good story. You know, I've been in these tablets for 14 years now. At some point, you just become the Zen master of it all. This interview took place in the weird period before Pitt and Jolie officially came out as a couple but after they had been very famously photographed on a remote beach in Kenya with Maddox. Those first exclusive pictures appeared in the May 9th, 2005 issue of Us Weekly. Did you know there'd be 
cameras everywhere? Did you know there'd be cameras in Kenya? Well, obviously not. You know, obviously not. I mean, it's it's an amazing fact the bounty that's on my head and the lengths that these people go to get these shots and the, the amount of money that they're paying for these shots. Okay, so these photos were almost definitely set up. That's what a couple of people in the paparazzi world told me. It's basically impossible to confirm at this point. I couldn't track down the photographer who took the actual photos. But Diani Beach in Kenya, where the photos were taken, is very out of the way and located on a private beach resort. It's not the kind of place that professional paparazzi just hang out at, hoping a good celeb will wander in. Someone almost certainly tipped the photographer. Those photos were taken in the spring of 2005. That summer, though they had yet to confirm they were together, Jolie and Pitt did a photo shoot for W Magazine that was basically a caricature of domestic bliss. She dressed as the sexed-up suburban housewife, he as the hunky hubs with a gaggle of kids in tow. It was in slightly bad taste. Jennifer Aniston certainly thought so. That was what she meant by her quote to Vanity Fair about Brad missing a sensitivity chip. But it was only the beginning of a years-long tabloid obsession with the Jolie Pitt children. People magazine reportedly spent anywhere between four to seven million dollars on the first photos of baby Shiloh, while the pictures of their twins, Knox and Vivienne, were reportedly bought for $11 million. Jared Shapiro told me one memorable story that illustrates the lengths tabloids would go to get stories about Jolie Pitt progeny, particularly Shiloh, who was born in Namibia. This said reporter wanted to get into the hospital where Angelina Jolie was giving birth. And we're not talking about Cornell Weill here, this huge 20-story, you know, talking about a little two-story, 10-room. So it is not easy to get in, especially they have tarps up everywhere. So he took a rock and she hit herself over the head to give her, I mean, this, these were not instructions from the news desk, by the way. And she checked herself into the hospital and was in the room next to Angelina Jolie giving birth to Shiloh. Oh my God. So again, when people are always like, how do you know that? How is that true about news? You know, that's how. Because my concussed reporter told me so. Yeah. Remember Lainey from up top? I'm Lainey Louie. I am the founder and editor of LaineyGossip.com. And in the early 2000s, I started LaineyGossip.com and became, I guess, one of the early gossip bloggers. Hi! Lainey made her bones by covering the trials and tribulations of Brangelina. If Perez Hilton's deal was to be infantile and a bit lewd about celebrities, Lainey's tone was definitely geared toward the more astute celebrity reader. She talked about the way the stars were using the press. In a lot of ways, Lainey was speaking to the kind of person that might also buy Us Weekly, someone who preferred their gossip with a little brain, a little celebrity media analysis. For instance, in a January 2006 post about how Jolie has just confirmed her first pregnancy, Lainey points out how the couple used People magazine as the vehicle for their announcement, since the magazine was, as she points out, the only weekly to have been very pro-pits in the last several months. I don't want to be that asshole who's like, yes, I take credit for educating the gossip masses. 
I do think that it has to do with the internet and I am like, um, I participate in the internet. I have a website. I do think in general, it was more people going online and getting exposed to the behind the scenes machinery of Hollywood that really opened up a better awareness of how things work. Um, and, and like it removed sort of the naivete of, of how things are. There's more to come on this series about how the internet and blogs changed celebrity media. But people like Lainey, Perez, and Michael Kay from D-Listed created this new little world with different norms and tone. Things felt a little more gloves off and less deferential to the celebrities. In fact, things could get downright mean. There were fewer boundaries on the blogs, more that these writers would say out loud. It got readers invested in the storylines, invested in their own theories about who was playing whom. People took sides in celeb feuds and defended their turf. It was probably the embryonic stages of what would become stan culture, feverish armies of fans too deeply invested in the lives of famous people. Eventually, as her site gained a following, Lainey started to get actual, actionable tips. I reported that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie would have their baby Shiloh uh, in Africa somewhere like three months before the baby was born in Namibia. So um, that sort of lended to my credibility. Blogs were by no means dominant in 2005 and 2006, but they were taking off. And the economics of why they would eventually take over were pretty apparent already. Magazines were splashing out millions a year on pictures and reporting. Think Peter's trip to Anguilla. But blogs were all about voice and tone and keeping the overhead low by, well, doing things like cribbing pictures without paying for them. It was really the Wild West. Talk to anyone who worked on the internet at that time. Let there be no mistake, print tabloid coverage was still driving the zeitgeist. The whole motherhood focus of Brangelina versus Jen? I chalk a lot of that up to Janice Min's Us Weekly in particular. The magazine was great at monetizing motherhood. Janice Min actually wrote a book after she left us called How to Look Hot in a Minivan, a real woman's guide to losing weight, looking great, and dressing chic in the age of the celebrity mom. The age of the celebrity mom. I'd like to point out that celebrities were moms well before the early aughts. Know who helped create the age of the celebrity mom? Janice Min. What was the impetus for you to write this book? Listen, I am a mother of three. I was editing Us Weekly, and um, I was pregnant. I felt gross and big, and all these celebrity moms <laughs> were suddenly out there showing their bumps, looking cute and beautiful, and then pulling it together quickly right afterwards. And I felt like, listen, I can learn something from these women. Her book is filled with pictures of the same celebrities who populated the pages of her version of Us Weekly. Halle Berry, Heidi Klum, Giselle, Kate Hudson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Gwen Stefani. Anyhow, if it was still the big dogs like Min and Us Weekly who were driving coverage, it was the new blogs that were giving the most devoted readers a deeper, more personalized analysis of celebrity news. They delved into the psychological underpinnings of the implicit Team Aniston versus Team Jolie dynamic. We all participated in it, right? And that goes from 
Lainey Gossip to Perez Hilton to Vanity Fair. I mean, Jennifer Aniston was on the cover of Vanity Fair a few months after it all happened. And that was the infamous article where Billy Idol wants his hair back and missing a sensitivity chip. Lainey is talking about the Leslie Bennett's Vanity Fair piece. She's quoting little digs that Aniston made about Pitt. The fact that I still remember these quotes is sad, but also lots of us remember these quotes. You know, like that was an obsession. That was the biggest story for several years, this love triangle. Remember, like it was Kitson that printed T-shirts, Team Aniston or Team uh, Jolie sold them. Ah, the heyday of the printed slogan tea. I honestly thought, well, they're stupid when they came out. I'm like, oh, well, who's going to buy these? I mean, the divorce. This is Fraser Ross, the owner of the Hollywood boutique Kitson. Fair article. It was 25 to one for Aniston. I mean, it, for a long time. And it was really, a, a, you know, a, a, a kind of a stepping stone to get all these other team shirts out. We had team Jessica and team Nick, team Nicole and team Paris when they had an, a fight. So but the Aniston Jolie became part of pop culture. And history. Which one were you? I mean, I mean, both. I couldn't say because Angelina shopped in the store and Jennifer Aniston we had an event with. So, I mean, I don't want to put, (laughs) say. I think I said this in the first episode, but I am unabashedly Team Aniston. Honestly, after the Pitt-Jolie divorce, I'm even Team Pitt. I am one of those predictable American women who find Angelina Jolie a little off-putting, a little unsettling. I don't like cheating, but if my logic were coherent, wouldn't that mean I should dislike Pitt, too? And I don't at all. I find him very, very charming. So it's not just that. There's some internalized misogyny at work that makes me forgive male charm. You heard how nice I was to Ben Affleck on episode one. And David Fincher, who directed him in Gone Girl, basically said that Affleck was unnervingly good at playing a cheater, even for an actor. My ability to forgive that male charm? A lot of Americans' ability to forgive male charm? Maybe there's some of that ingrained social conservatism the tabloids are so good at reinforcing, rearing its ugly head. I think women have more conservative gender instincts than we'd like to admit. They're baked into the lizard part of our brain. Otherwise, the European Wax Center would be completely out of business. People are inclined to forgive or rehabilitate men in public life more easily for all manner of things. We trap women in amber. The whole Brangelina love triangle tale has had some twists in recent years. There was a 2016 incident on a private jet that led to allegations of child abuse by Pitt which were later investigated and no charges were ever brought. The divorce was inevitable. It's been followed by an ongoing, ugly, five-year custody battle over the kids. Through all this, Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt have pretty publicly reconciled. Here they are at the 2020 table read for charity of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Hi, Aniston. Hi, Pitt. How you doing? Good, honey. How are you doing? I'm all right. The internet, as the internet likes to say, swooned over this interaction. The idea of a reversion to the Hollywood mean, a golden laid-back couple, was almost too much to handle. 
People seemed genuinely buoyed by the news cycles about Aniston-Pitt interactions at award shows. Angelina Jolie isn't getting that kind of press. She's fighting a very public battle to keep Pitt from having joint custody, and her lawyers have said some of her kids want to testify against Pitt in court. She also vaguely alluded to the past decade of her personal life having been difficult in an interview this summer with The Guardian. If I'm honest, I still find Angelina Jolie confounding, while I innately get the appeal of shipping Jen and Brad. But custody battles are sad. This one seems sad and isolating in a way that maybe only layers of wealth and celebrity can engineer. And it makes me feel for this extremely wealthy, beautiful woman, Angelina Jolie, who I've been conditioned to dislike since I was a teenager. She seems a little out there on her own. If you think about it that way, the old tabloid party lines and one-dimensional characterizations have held up pretty well all these years later. Brad and Jen are still the laid-back, cool, would-be couple, and Angelina Jolie is still the weird outsider. Nostalgia at its worst. Next time on Just Like Us. What TMZ became was the page six for everywhere in the country except for the five boroughs of New York City. Jen Aniston doesn't talk when she comes out of a restaurant, but you know who does? Brandon Davis. And you know what he does? Says a lot of shit on Lindsay Lohan, which becomes internet gold. And it felt like I was constantly, I sounded like, you know, a shrew a bit. Like, we can't write this. We can't do this. And I can see how in a newsroom, you know, nobody wants that. And, and it started to, be, I felt like I, I started to become like, you know, the culture police. And I hated that. Just Like Us, The Tabloids That Changed America was written and reported by me, Claire Malone, with story editing by Amanda Dobbins. The show was executive produced by Juliet Littman and Sean Fennessy. Our producers are Amanda Dobbins, Kaya McMullen, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Hansdale Shee. The music is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing was done by Craig Gaines and fact-checking by Juliana Ress. Our art director is David Shoemaker. Illustration by Michael Weinstein. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.